0: Just to clear up any curiosity that you might have, yes, I'm drinking tea this morning and not coffee, although I've already had a cup of coffee, but as you can tell, uh, I left my voice in Moses Lake last night, and so, yeah, for the first time in 27 years, Wheeler Cougar football has made it to the semifinals, so... Congratulations. We were without one of our dudes who was here celebrating as a family, Josiah. So congratulations to the Whitaken family, a big family that's getting bigger. So congratulations, Pete and Christy, Caleb and Abby. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Pete and Christy, their oldest son, Caleb, uh, got married to Abby Greenhagen yesterday. A wonderful ceremony, and uh, of course we wish them the greatest. And uh, we need to be praying for them. Uh, marriage is under attack around the world, and uh, for sure. And uh, they're stationed in Caleb. For those of you who don't know, Caleb's stationed. He's uh, in the Coast Guard, and they're stationed in Oahu. Is that right? Honolulu. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Chrissy's excited. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, plane tickets just went up. Anyway, so you'll have to uh, pardon my raspy voice. I had uh, the, uh, the old logger that I did a funeral for, Grover Alby, a guy up in Summit Valley. He um, uh, Years ago, I can remember talking to him, and he was drinking tea one day, and I'd never known Grover to ever drink tea. He was a coffee guy from way back. And I said, what's, what's with the tea, Grover? What's with the, why are you drinking tea? And uh, he said, oh, he says, His wife's name was Elaine. Oh, Elaine, she's got me on this thing, you know, and she's cutting out all coffee. I said, how's it going? He goes, I don't like it. Not that I don't like tea. He says, I don't like all the harassment I get from the logging crew because they're all calling me Mr. Belvedere now. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) all you young people have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. If you grew up like I did in the 70s and 80s watching TV, Mr. Belvedere was a TV character. Anyway, we have been... uh, We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. and We got through the end of chapter 3 last week. Now we come to chapter 4, and there's a a significant shift in Jesus' teaching style that we're going to kind of talk about for a little bit and then as we jump into it. But Jesus now here in chapter 4 begins to teach using parables. Using parables. The word parable... Comes from this idea to set alongside. That's what that's what parable means. It's, it's to set alongside. It's similar to parallel. But uh, so Jesus is setting spiritual truths alongside of daily the daily truths of living. That's one little subpoint there. He's setting spiritual truths alongside the daily truths of living. Parables are simply they're just simple stories used to teach us moral or spiritual lessons. And a parable that is unexplained is what we would refer to as a riddle. A parable that, 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 that you can't figure out. And, and as we get into chapter 4, we're going to see right from the get-go that the disciples were struggling to understand what he said. And so there's a brief moment in the dialogue where what Jesus is talking about really for them is a riddle. And then in the Old Testament, parables are not just a New Testament thing, although I think it's safe to say that we generally think that way. But they're not just a New Testament thing. And this is one of the evidences where the New and the Old Testament can't be uncoupled, where we just focus on one over the other or one without the other. There's actually many, many, and I just have a sampling of a few. There's many parables that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Psalm 78, I'm going to give you a list. And just talk about three of them just briefly. Psalm 78, 2 Samuel 12, Judges chapter 9, Isaiah 6, and Ezekiel 17. Those are all just chapters. You can do your homework and dig in and see if I'm right. But I read up on three of them for sure. Actually, I read all of them, but I did a little more study. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the famous story where the prophet Nathan confronts king david's sin using a parable of a poor man with only one sheep while the wealthy man comes to take that one sh- who, the wealthy man who has many many sheep comes to steal that one that one lamb from the poor man and and nathan the prophet uses a parable to bring king david to a realization that he's talking about his own sin the fact that he had stolen away Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. And uh, he comes under conviction for his sin. So, par- parables are used in a powerful way. The other one, uh, Judges chapter 9, <coughs> Jotham, the only son of Gideon, uh, the, the only one of Gideon's sons to escape the massacre. There in Judges chapter 9, here he told a parable to rebuke the men of Shechem for their choice of Abimelech as king. So Jotham Jotham is is kind of, in a sense, setting them up because they they disobeyed what God was saying. And he uses a parable. The other one is in Ezekiel chapter 17, where God gives Ezekiel a parable of judgment because Judah revolted against Babylon in the time of Zedekiah. Now, all of Israel was told, and they were being judged because of their disobedience, so God told them through several different prophets, but He told them, "Hey, I'm going to put you into captivity. I'm going to. You are going to come under Babylonian captivity. You're being judged for your disobedience. And there was times in there where there was a. Here, the time of Zedekiah, uh, there was a. They tried to rise up in rebellion to Babylon. You think well. Didn't we do that with England? Yeah, we did. There's times to know when it's the right time to stand on truth and to do what's right, even if it means that you're somewhat in some social disobedience. But in this case, they were actually disobeying what God had said was to be their punishment. And so it didn't work. It failed. Mark chapter 4 is as we look to it, as we're starting to turn to it, it's really a significant turn in Jesus' ministry. And here's the reason why, as we've talked many weeks about the growing tension between Jesus and the religious elites who are trying to trap him, trying to catch him in his words, trying to, trying to get him to say something that he's not or getting to him to be something that he's not. They're really, in their hearts, they've been rejecting him. As the Messiah, all along. And Jesus here begins to teach in parables. So, in a sense, and not completely, but in a sense, this begins uh, a little bit of a time here where Jesus is kind of proclaiming, simply because he's going to parables, he's kind of proclaiming in a, in a way that judgment is coming, that they're going to be judged. And I just wanted to footnote that. It's uh, something to think about as now we turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read the first eight verses and then kind of dive into it. (coughs) Excuse me. Mark chapter four, verse one. And again, he began to teach by the sea and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. I'm just gonna pause right there. Not in my notes, but something I thought about. (coughs) Uh, In a natural setting, this creates incredible acoustics actually. Uh, it creates incredible acoustics. And, and I don't think that that should be um, overemphasized or underemphasized. This is something that was, that was natural uh, to what was going on. We've seen in chapter three where the crowds were pushing against Jesus so much, we saw in the last chapter, where he even told the disciples, hey, prepare a boat. I don't, you know, we don't want to get crushed here by all these people. Then he taught, verse two, then he taught them many things by parables and said to them, In his teaching, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it and some fell on stony ground and where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, and it (coughs) increased and produced, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100. One of the things that's good for us, and I was reminded, uh, there's a lot of difference in how farming practices were in the first century, than what those of us that are farmers do now. We have a tendency and and uh, we go out, we we plow the ground, we, we work the ground, we cultivate it, we fertilize it, we work the fertilizer into the soil, and then we come in with this massive machinery and we basically, literally, we force the seeds, if you will. We create these little micro channels and the seeds drop in those little micro channels and then that seed gets covered up, and there's a lot that's going on, there's a lot of mechanics to it, but the process in and of itself is pretty simple. And it's really not unlike what was happening in the first century, other than in the first century what they would do is the farmers would go out and cast the seed and then actually just work the seed into the soil. More like, uh, I don't know, I'm not a bread maker. I haven't made a loaf of bread probably since we had a bread machine. But I would imagine it'd be similar to like making bread, where you're kneading bread, something into the loaf, and uh, like raisin bread or something like that. I don't know. Why am I thinking about raisin bread? I really like raisin bread, actually. <laughs> Write that in your notes. But the first century, they would they would work the seed down into the soil, where we work the soil and prepare it for the seed. And so there's kind of a stark difference there. And here Jesus is laying out in the first eight verses four different soil types with four different experiences. In verse three, you have the along the wayside, the pathway, maybe your Bible says. uh, And what happened to that seed? The birds ate it. The birds ate it. I've been fascinated for years, you know, and I don't know if you guys all know this, but I live just a couple miles out here, and I'm in a farming community. I'm a farmer myself. And for years and years, most of the grain that was grown in our area, the majority of it anyway, went to uh, a pig farm up in Summit Valley. And so when, they, when harvest comes, and, and uh, the Zerba family that owned the pig farm at that time, and still do, uh, they had multiple semis. And so they would just keep alternating trucks, as farmers do. They'd go take one down, let it fill while they're dumping the other one. And so they made dozens and dozens of trips, trips on Marble Valley and then up Addy Gifford. And it's always fascinated, really fascinated me when I was a little kid. Is why are all the birds alongside the road this time of the year? Well, they're eating that grain. It's just a natural. I mean, they see it, they eat it, and and then it's gone. The second soil type that Jesus talks about is stony places. Stony places, verse 4. What what indicates stony places? Here's a couple of things. Shallow soil. And Jesus talks about this, not just that it's stony, but that it's shallow soil, it's sun-scorched. And what there is really in those scenarios is it's superficial growth right? It, it, there's just enough soil to germinate, but there's not enough soil, and with, when, when there's not enough soil, there's not enough nutrients for that plant to do anything more than to just come out of the ground a little bit. And so it ends up with superficial growth. The third one is, the third soil type is among the thorns, where Jesus is saying that, hey, when you scatter seed among the thorns, often what happens is, is that seed gets choked out by the competition. It gets choked out by the competition. Some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. From a farming perspective, what happens in real weedy patches, and I, I probably have Ed come up here and just give us a full tutorial for 20 minutes on farming, and I'll have a seat with you guys. But what happens is in real weedy patches... Is when, when you work the ground you fertilize it you plant it it looks great you see all of this green growth come up and it looks really good from the highway until you go walk out in it am I right Ed and then when you get out in it you notice that like all of that green is not the grain that I planted there's thistles and there's you know pigweed and there's you know buttonweed there's all these different types of weeds And what happens is, is if if, if those weeds aren't dealt with, then everything will grow up. But once that grain crop gets up about so high and starts to head out, all of the nutrients is robbed by the weeds, and the grain then just has these little tiny shriveled kernels. There's nothing in it. And so it's weedy. It's it's exactly what Jesus said. Uh, Thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. That's the third type of soil. You guys didn't know you were coming for an agronomy lesson, did you? I should charge. I'm just joking. It's like a college class. We all had to pay for our own college, right? Amen? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Can I? <laughs> it was not necessarily a political statement. What was going through my mind is, is that <laughs> at 18... When I went to school down at Spokane Community College, I went up and, I went in and signed up for classes. I had no idea what I was doing, no idea what classes. I wanted to get into the hydraulics, the fluid power program, uh, because I wanted to work with hydraulics, because I thought that'd be a natural for farming, and uh, the program was full, so they said, just take some basic courses, and we'll see what happens, you know, a semester. And so I said, all right, sign me up. I mean, I have no clue, what do I need, you know? And so the lady signed me up for a few things, and I got my checkbook out, and I started writing a check, and she says, uh, Mr. Hopkins, what are you doing? I said, I'm paying you. She says, nobody shows up and writes a check. I say, don't? I had no clue. I was completely naive. They ended up taking my money, I guess, to cash the check. I don't know how it all worked. Maybe it went to somebody's checking account. But anyway, I, where was that? Number four. Let's get back to the good soil. Verse 8 tells us where Jesus says, but many seed fell on the good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up and increased and produced. And there's a little footnote there that he, I shouldn't say a footnote. He says it produces some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. See, the good soil grows and produces beyond expectation, Jesus says. Now, <clears throat> there's some hidden nuance in here because I would venture that there's probably two of us in this room that understands that this is, this is a crazy volume of production because the normal, and I, I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes, but a, a, a stock of wheat, a single stock of wheat, does anybody know how many kernels come off of that? Tammy cheated and looked at my notes. <laughs> Pastor's only about 20, 15 to 20 maybe. It's probably the average. But Jesus is saying here, he uh, he goes beyond expectation and says it's going to produce 30, 60, or 100 fold. In other words, what he's saying, by implication, is, is in this parable, that that uh, seed that's sown in good soil produces not just good, beyond good to great. It produces uh, beyond our wildest imaginations of volume i've seen bumper crops that were just insane absolutely insane and not so much in the grain i'm not so much of a grain farmer i get that but jesus is saying you know it's it's five times as heavy as normal hundredfold and normally produces 20 verse 9, he goes on to say, And he said to them, and this is a key verse to the whole passage, verse 9, And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This phrase is repeated through the Bible dozens and maybe hundreds of times. He who has an ear, let him hear. Verse 10, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable and he said to them to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of god but to those who are on who are outside all things come in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may not hear and not understand lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them a quote out of isaiah by quoting this passage in isaiah jesus explains why he uses parables In teaching by parables, Jesus offers his hearers the opportunity to dig deep and to find the truth or to turn a blind eye to just what might be just an interesting story. But these guys here, they were struggling to understand the meaning of the parables, and so they ask him. Actually, in the Bible, a mystery isn't something that you can just figure out. It's something that you would uh, not normally know. It's something that comes by an important component and that's revelation mystery a mystery or a riddle and especially I'm talking specifically just what's in the Bible it doesn't come just by you know you being super smart or me being super smart which I know I'm not it comes by God revealing it to you It comes by revelation parables in their spiritual function are more like riddles in a sense or puzzles that are easy illustrations and they can be understood by those then that have the right key and that key is understanding it by revelation a parable in that way is is similar to a doorway then it's a doorway into understanding what God is doing it's a doorway understanding how God works it's a doorway into understanding what God's purposes are and Jesus listeners then are standing at this doorway they heard him you know, if they weren't interested, they would, they would probably just have stayed on the outside. But they were interested. They wanted to know. They wanted to walk through the doorway. They wanted to, to see what God was saying in the deeper truths of this particular parable and the ones that will follow. But if we don't understand the key to the parable, we really won't understand it at all. And they wanted to have that key. He asked them this question then. In verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So he's he's given them an opportunity to to come out with it, so to speak. Do you want to know? Do you want to know more? Increasing measure of, of what I'm talking about? He says in verse 14, the sower sows the word. I'll just read a passage here and then we'll go back and look at it. Verse 14, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown <coughs> on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so, <coughs> and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns, they are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitful, deceitfulness of riches and the desires of <coughs> for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100-fold. First thing that I wanted to go back and talk about is the fact that the sower sows the word. He's planting the word of God. He's planting the word of God. Now, here's what's interesting about this as I was thinking through it this week. Is that we have the opportunity to be on both sides of the equation. All of mankind really does. You can, you, you all. If you were a Christ follower, at some point you were the soil, whatever type. You were the soil, and also now, as a Christ follower, you have the opportunity to be the sower. You have the opportunity to spread the word of God. All of us do. That's not my job alone. That's our job as Christians. Warren Wearsby says this, he says, Hard hearts must be plowed up before they can receive the seed, and this can be a painful experience. And for many of us, I know for me specifically, there were times where that plowing was really, really difficult. This fall, uh, we didn't get much rain to do much fall tillage. Ed and I have kind of talked about it from time to time, and we, everybody's kind of waiting. We waited, we waited to hopefully we'd get a little rain and 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 uh, I still have like 140 acres that still need tilled or I'd like to till it, I don't know if the snow will leave and the frost will get away um, yet this fall. But that being said, I had one chunk of ground I had to get tilled. And it was a piece of ground that's been in hay and it's been watered for about 12 years and it's as hard a clay as you've ever seen. And so I specifically bought a smaller plow to use with a bigger tractor so that I could get through this hard ground hard hearts are in a sense just like that chunk of clay ground they have to be plowed up and it's painful it's a painful experience sometimes and you know your story better than anybody how your hard heart had to be plowed up as well it's the nature of the way things are it's the nature of what God is doing he intentionally comes out after the hard hearts with a word of encouragement with a word of hope with a word of exhortation with something beyond what we can experience as humans he offers us hope for eternal life there's two points here about planting god's word out of the old testament first was first one plays off of this painful experience when we're planting god's word we need to expect a challenge We need to understand that that change comes, in a sense, through difficulty. Hosea chapter 10 says this in verse 12 and 13. Hosea says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruits of lies because you trusted in your own way in a multitude of your mighty men. There's a sense in where God says, hey, the the difficulty is, is where are you placing your hope? Where are you placing your trust? In your own abilities? In your own efforts? In those that you can gather around you as a community or as a nation? No, he says, that isn't the way that it works. He says, break up that hard hearts. Break up that fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. I'd say that's true for our time as well. It's time for us to seek the Lord. Jeremiah says in chapter 4, verse 3, For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. Oftentimes I wonder if Jesus was thinking of Jeremiah 4, 3 when he said this parable. Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil things that you're doing. I love the Old Testament prophets for the simple fact that they don't mince words. They get right to the point. And hard hearts, hard hearts are a big challenge. I can say that for my own story, for my own experience, for what God has done in my life, that my hard heart was a challenge. The second point here about planning God's word is that when we're planning God's word, we need to understand the process. And there is a process in a sense. The word engages our hearing, which produces faith. Romans 10, 17 says then, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes By the word of God. Hearing comes by the word of God. When we're planting, we can't just plant good ideas. We can't just be talking about just social change. We can't talk about, you know, recapturing something from a few hundred years ago and having that type of an environment to live in because it's, you know, more Christian-y or whatever our hopes are. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just simply saying that when we're planting, when we're sharing, when we're encouraging, when we're evangelizing people, that has to come strictly from the Word of God. That's what changes hearts, is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So if we want people to change their faith, change what they're trusting in, who they're trusting in, then we have to start with the Word, share the Word, allow them to hear the Word, and then the change happens but it has to be centered on and strictly focused on the Word of God. That's why the key principle in this passage then goes back to verse 9. Ears to hear. We have to have ears to hear. We need to be sharing with people that have ears to hear. And let me just share something with you. Everybody that you talk to and share the gospel with, everybody that you share Jesus with is not going to have ears to hear. And there's times, I I think a lot of times, and I see it even in myself at times, that we're too thin-skinned to say anything because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be denied. We don't necessarily want to get into a debate. So we say nothing rather than taking a chance that we might be rejected. What if that person wouldn't have rejected you? What if the message that they needed to hear was exactly what you were thinking you just didn't say anything, or I didn't say anything. We have to thicken our skin, in a sense, brothers and sisters, in this regard, to just share the word. Let God do what only God can do. We've, we talked about that for years. And it's a phrase that Barry brought up, I don't know, 8, 9, 10 years ago. Like, we need to be looking for the things that only God can do, where he's getting the glory, that's not us. And a part of that is just stepping out in faith here in Mark 4. And being planners of the Word of God, let God do what only God can do. Paul says, "Some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the increase, the things that only God can do. You can't control somebody else's growth. but you need to do, and I need to do our part. We need to be good planners of the word of God. Do we have ears to hear? Or do we hear only what we wish to hear? There's a lot of people in both camps. Now when I say ears to hear, when I read these verses, I think of this to give you a little bit of a definition or a little bit of a kind of a working paradigm to go with, and that is is ears to hear. My definition is tuned in hearts that are submitted to the master master, despite the draws of the flesh. And there's people that, that are looking They are seeking the Lord. They might not be saved right now, but they have a genuine curiosity towards truth. Even though maybe they believe something different, maybe they don't believe anything at all. They have a genuine curiosity towards who God really is and what His message really is. They have a genuine curiosity of, how did I get here? Questions that every person has to answer, uh, really faces. How did I get here? What's going on while I'm here? And where am I going when I die? He who has ears, let him hear. Tuned in hearts that are submitted to the master, despite the draws of the flesh. All right. Now we've been talking about hears. Let's dive back into the rest of it all. There's four types of soil Soils. There are four types of hear, hearers. There are those people that are along the wayside where the birds ate the, ate the seed. And the result is, Jesus says there in verse 15, when they hear, so when they hear the message, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Satan comes immediately. And takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. That's really his game plan. You want to know what the enemy's game plan is? It's to keep you, it's to keep other people from hearing the word of God. Pretty simple strategy. If they don't hear it, then they won't start believing. If they don't, if they don't believe, if they're not uh, starting to surrender their life and so surrender themselves to the Lord, of, uh, to the, to the Lord and, and then they won't start walking in faith. And so his tactic right from the get-go is just to remove God's Word. What's the antidote towards that? What's, how, how, do, how do we come against that? How can you encourage other people that you're sharing with to not fall to this trap? A couple verses out of the book of James. James 4, 7-10 says, Therefore submit to God. Wow, that's pretty confrontive right from the get-go, James. Yep, that's right. But that's, in essence, what, where the, the battle line is drawn. Satan comes in, tries to steal it away, or or we, and we encourage other people, to just submit to God. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's an opportunity, in a sense, you could say, that the first three soil types can be converted to the good soil type. And this is part of the antidote is how to get there. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up it's a sober reminder and an opportunity to stand against satan's schemes but there's many that fall to that there's many that fall to that where it's just this quick you know booms the seed hits their hearts and it's it's just gone it's just flash and it's gone because the enemy doesn't want them hearing the word he doesn't want them sitting and soaking in The second type of here is the stony places, those that reside in stony places in their thinking or in their hearts and their attitudes. As I mentioned earlier, the description of the stony places is shallow soil, sun-scorched, and superficial growth. The result that Jesus says of that is in verse 16. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with gladness, and they have... (coughs) And they have no root in themselves, so and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, note this for the word's sake, for the word's sake that tribulation or persecution comes, then immediately they stumble. Jesus knew that many would have an immediately a favorable reaction to the word of God, but they gave it up quickly when it becomes too difficult to follow. That happens many, many, many times. Maybe that was a part of your story. That was a part of my story, right? Where the 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 seed had been sown into my life, and as I got into my you know preteen and teenage years, other things became more important. Other things became uh, uh, they become paramount in my life. We learned to. Just kind of cope with it, you know, and show up here on a Sunday and play the part. uh, Be the good kid. But it wasn't really, hadn't really like taken root. It hadn't really, I was that, I had that type of heart. Shallow soil, superficial growth at best in my teenage years. So I understand this stony place really well. But I also understand that God has an antidote for superficial hearts. And his antidote for superficial hearts goes to an old verse that I memorized when I was in my early twenties: Colossians two six through seven. Doing the old, that uh, oh, help me out. Navigator series. There we go. That's what they're called. Still in action today. The antidote for the stony places and the superficial hearts is found in Colossians two six through seven. As you therefore have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving and see what paul's saying to the Colossian, the church there in Colossians is that is that just the way that you receive jesus that's the way you keep going like rooted and built up i have in my shop i should have brought it today i don't know why i didn't I, i've kept this thing around for a sermon illustration for like three years but what I have is I have an alfalfa plant. And I don't know how this happened, but it just happened to come out of the ground, the whole thing. And, and we think of just, you know, the alfalfa grows, you know, knee-high, and it's green, and it's great for the cows and all that. But the plant itself is kind of amazing. This root is like this long. It's like three feet long. And it was like sheared off at the end, so I don't know how much longer it was than that. And I think about that, and I think about this verse in regard to our spiritual walk with the Lord are we rooted and built up in him are we locked in on him see there's much as much as what you see in the forest with the trees as much as what's above the ground that's under the ground locking into the rocks digging down into the good soil securing itself and it's the wind that comes against it on a regular basis is what drives those roots in and locks them in so, they, so that it doesn't just fall over. That's the anchor. That's the rooted and built up in Him. And if you don't want to be tipped over in your faith, or if you don't want somebody else to be tipped over in their faith, then your encouragement and my encouragement for anyone is stay in the Word. Keep reading. Keep digging. Keep mining it out. Stay rooted in who Christ is it will serve you in the long haul not every day is a windy day but those of you that have been around here long enough to know that there's an occasionally we get these big 50 60 mile an hour gusts and everybody ends up out of power why because these occasionally these trees tip over they didn't have deep enough roots or maybe they were diseased or whatever don't get tipped over in your faith stay rooted and built up in him just the way you received him so walk in him, established in the faith, as you've been taught. That's the antidote for the stony places. Third one is, is among the thorns. The third type of hearer, are those that are among the thorns that end up getting choked out by competition. Jesus says the result of this type there in verse 18 and 19 is those who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, entering <clears throat> in, they choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Kind of a too many things on your plate, too many things that are as important or more important than the Word of God. the antidote for that. Jesus tells us in Matthew's Gospel, verse, chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There has to be a priority to our spiritual life. It's not just this blanket thing of, you know, across the board, spread it all out, and try to give a little bit of energy to everything, or every person, or every endeavor. There has to be a hierarchy. And there is a hierarchy, and that's Jesus at the top, His Word at the top. And then from that, everything flows out. And, 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 and that's, that's how you avoid, if you will, that's the antidote, if you will, to these thorny places. There has to be a hierarchy, there has to be something that becomes more, one thing that's more important than the other. Don't fall out of your chair, but that's what our 2-4-D is for. <laughs> that's farming-wise. We're saying, by going out and spraying the grain, we're saying that one part of it is more important than the next. And something has to die for something else to live. That's what we're saying farming-wise. But that same principle is true in our own lives. When we talk about the, the importance and the hierarchy of the word of God in our lives. That sometimes you have to make a choice. I have to make a choice. What's more important? What's more important? Making sure we see the Mariners games and Seahawks. Spending time with our, in the word and spending time with family. We, you guys, and we, this is just a, we, we make decisions every split second. We have to categorize those decisions in a matter of importance. You can't serve two things and be successful. You will be, I will be, either loyal to one and despise the other, hate one, or love the other. The invitation there that Jesus has thrown out by implication is to love the Lord, to love His Word, to, to make that the priority over all things, that we come into under in every situation and every decision that we make is, is really bathed in under the authority of the Word of God presiding over our lives, over our marriages, over our families, over this fellowship, that that's what it's made for, not human wisdom, not what's the best deal, not what looks good in society, but what does God say? That's how you deal with the thorns. And of course, the fourth one is the good soil. The good soil. And the good soil there in <clears throat> that we see in verse 8, the result of that good soil, are those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. It's interesting that this parallel, uh, parable is really self-explanatory when we get to the good soil as compared to the first three. That the, there's growth and there's production beyond expectation. In a lot of ways, the good soil is similar to the illustration that John <clears throat> writes about in John 15, where he says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'll stop there at the end of verse 4. The interesting thing about planting seeds and growing grain, growing some sort of a crop, is, is that you can put all the seed in the soil you want to and you'll have a marginal crop at best if there's not really good Seed to soil contact. That's why you see, you know, different people have different methods. Either you harrow it after you seed it, or you have some sort of a a packer that kind of packs it down a little bit. Ladies that garden, you know, you planting seeds and stepping on them. It's just, it's all the same thing. But what that does, it's not just uh, so you have a footprint in your garden, or so that our rows and our fields out in Farmingville look cool at the end. It's so that it's so that it's so to create good seed to soil contact. If there's a, if, if you put a seed in the ground and then there's not good seed to soil contact and you have this little gap, there will be no gem, genera, uh, germination. It takes the seed to soil contact for, ger, to germinate. That's really kind of a parallel idea of what Jesus is saying. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. That seed cannot grow. It cannot germinate. It cannot be fruitful. It cannot produce beyond expectation unless it's done properly. Unless there's good seed to soil contact and fertilizer. And the good soil is a picture of fertile ground that's well fertilized and well watered. See, farmers don't just dig up the seed to see if everything's growing. Not in the process of what we do for a living, anyway. Occasionally, we might walk out and dig one or two up, but you don't go out and dig up the whole field just to see if it's started to germinate. No, we keep doing the work of cultivating. We trust in the process, and then we turn a corner in the in about midsummer. If you drive around, you'll start seeing farmers turn this little corner because they've trusted in the process. Then they turn their attention to the back end of it, which is the harvest. Turn and prepare for the harvest. Because growth takes time and results take time. We need to be patient but persistent. If you're you're picking up on it all, if you're understanding what I'm saying as a seed planter, or if you think back to your own story, when somebody planted the word of God in you and shared the gospel with you, there was elements that were there, and that is elements of patience, but there's also elements of persistence. Right? So be patient with people as planters because somebody was patient with you. But be persistent as planters because somebody out there was persistent with you. That's kind of the way that farming works. It's also the way that the gospel works. I wrote a little note here, side note. uh, Let's see, yeah. Growth takes time, results take time. Be patient, be persistent. Do the work. Focus on your habits. Be ready for the harvest. The harvest that I'm talking about is what John wrote about in chapter 4, verses 35 through 38, where Jesus says the fields are... Are, they're ready, they're white, they're, the grain is ready to be harvested. And we live in a society where there's tons of people, in a sense, that are in that same moat. They're ready to be harvested, they're ready to come into the kingdom of God, they're ready to trust, they're ready to surrender. And, and don't be fooled by what may appear as a, a, a shell around them, because people are guarded, you were guarded, I was guarded. Stay in there, be patient, be persistent, and spread the word of God. Look for that harvest. Mark mentioned that the good soil produces plenty of crop. That 30, 60, and 100 was mind-blowing in the first century, and what's interesting is all these years later, it's still just as mind-blowing. It's just as mind-blowing when it comes to planting grain. So Jesus is saying that if our hearts are open to his word, and if the worship team wants to come on up, we'll wrap this thing up. If our hearts are open to his word, our lives will produce way more than average, way more than what's expected, way more than what's normal. We will, as John says here in John 15, we will bear much fruit. Now, John talked about a lot of other things in the process. There's some tough things that happen in John 15, some pruning, some taking away, some, uh, some uh, hard work that the, that the master does in the lives of his people, kind of illustrated in the vineyard where some, something has to go for something to be uh, better, something to produce more. A lot of us in Christianity, we fall off the train at that point because we don't want to lose anything we got going. We just want God to add the blessing. But the blessing comes actually through sacrifice. Yesterday at halftime, we were up 30 to nothing. I'm going to close with football just because it's on my mind. Silas, <laughs> Silas knows exactly what I'm talking about. We went into halftime 30 to nothing. You would think, hey, the game's over, right? 30 to nothing, who can, who can blow a 30 to nothing lead? Touche. You're right. And I was concerned that we would blow a 30 to nothing lead. And here's why even though we were literally just taking Toledo to the woodshed in the first half, as guys were coming on and off the field, you could tell in their body language that they were being selfish, that they were not willing to, as John says here, uh, be pruned in their attitudes. And so uh, there was a few, not everybody, but there was a few kind of playing for themselves. So I asked the coaches can I have a couple minutes to talk about playing sacrificially. And I and so I did. And so I I don't know. I don't know how Silas would categorize categorize it, but I got pretty passionate about it. Because as a group of young men, that's what it takes to have victory. That's what it takes to win. And as a church and as families and as marriages, that's what it takes to have success is you have to sacrifice. You have to sacrifice. Different times you're going to sacrifice different things. Maybe you're going to sacrifice an attitude. Maybe you're going to sacrifice an activity. But you're going to sacrifice something. And in this parable of the sower, the seed ends up being what is essentially sacrificed, if you will, The seed, if we know, and I'm trying to mix too many metaphors, the seed has to drop into the ground and literally die to produce a good crop. I'm sharing with the boys that if you're willing to sacrifice and not worry about who gets the glory as individuals, you will all get the glory at the end of the game. And I say that to the church as well. If we don't stress about individual play but work as a team. And you know this principle is true in our marriages, in our families. If we're, if we're not working as a team, as a family, or as, as a couples, then nobody wins. We both lose. Or the family loses. Or in our case, in a sense, the church loses if we're worried about self. We have to sacrifice Because in the sacrifice, the the reward in the sacrifice is the fact that we will bear much fruit. And we can do that as a church, we can do that as couples, we can do that as families. I want you guys, I want all of us, to bear much fruit for Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.